Hi there, microbiology people. This is Dr. B, and today we are going to talk about how we see the invisible world, which corresponds to chapter two of the OpenStax book, and mostly addresses how, do, how can we observe those microorganisms, which, as you know, are the object of study of microbiology. So we defined microorganisms as those that we cannot see with unaided eye, and therefore a lot of this chapter is going to deal with microscopy or some techniques associated to microscopy, just, such as how you prepare uh, microorganisms to be observed under the microscope. Now, let's talk a little bit about the scale, you know, the sizes. Micro, microorganisms are uh, smaller or small. We cannot see them without, you know, some kind of micro, microscope equipment. But what exactly do we mean by small? And I will put in the, in the episode notes a, a one or two links that are kind of interactive sliders that will give you a much better idea of the, the range of sizes that exist in the microbial world. But, you know, there is a huge difference in scale between, let's say, a large complex eukaryotic cell and the virus. So I will give you a few pointers about, you know, numbers. And these numbers regarding size are in the metric system. One of the advantages of the metric system, which is the system where science communicates, is that the conversion factor between the different units are in multiples of 10. When you think about millimeter, millimeters is the 1,000 part of a meter, okay? So one meter is 1,000 millimeter. The next unit is going to be micrometer, which would be the 1,000th part of a millimeter. So one millimeter has 1,000 micrometer, which means that one meter has 1,000 times 1,000 times of micrometers. So that would be 1 million micrometers. And the next one would be nanometer and after that I think we'll be going into picometers and I don't think we have something that small. But um, what are the largest cells? The largest cells tend to be complex eukaryotic cells and if we think about you know like animal cells or even protozoans we will be looking at a size range between 10 and 100 micrometer. And these are cells that you can observe easily with a light microscope. Um, we are going to see then some cells may be smaller because they may be missing some parts, or we can also think about um, parts of the cell, for example, organelles. So once you are looking at, let's say, red blood cells or mitochondria, you are getting closer to the one micrometer um, range. And um, in that same range, so we are looking a little bit like 10 times smaller, 
then eukaryotic cells, this is where prokaryotic cells such as bacteria are going to be. So, you know, regular bacteria will be around one to five, maybe micrometer. They can be larger and smaller. And as I mentioned in the first chapter, there are some bacteria that you can actually see with the naked eye, for example, that huge bacterium thiomargarita. Now, what is smaller? What are the microorganisms smaller than bacteria? Those will be viruses. And some viruses are much larger than others. And we will see that this has to do with how complex their structures are. You may recall that viruses were not part of the three domain system because they are not cells. They are just a nucleic acid covered with a protein coat, and some of them can be covered with an external envelope. So envelope viruses tend to be bigger than smaller viruses. So let's say the flu virus, for example, or the smallpox virus, which are quite large, they're going to be kind of 10 times smaller than a bacteria. So we are looking here at 100 nanometer. But most viruses will be around the 10 nanometer range. And under that, or smaller than that, we, you are looking at molecules. Okay? Now, we said, looking, talking about eukaryotic cells, we said, oh, you can observe that perfectly fine with a normal microscope. And what I mean by normal is what we, um, we call a bright field microscope. This is the one that is in the lab, the one you'll be using mostly. For um, bacteria, you can see them under a regular objective lens, but for a clearer view, you need to use a special lens called the oil lens, and we'll talk more about this later. However, for viruses, you, they are too small to see with a bright field microscope. For those, you need to use a special kind of microscope called the electron microscope. And we will now explain why do you have to use different microscopes for, you know, different sizes. And we will define a few concepts that are related to um, microscopy. So waves. Why are we talking about waves? Because light is but one kind of electromagnetic wave. So when we think about microscopy, we have to think about the properties of waves. And for any wave of any kind, there are a few um, basic properties. For example, wavelength, amplitude, and frequency. If, if you are maybe a surfer, you may kind of get the feeling of what those mean because, you know, waves are waves, so they have similar um, concepts or definition. So what is a wavelength? It's the distance between one peak of a wave and the next peak. What is amplitude? Means how big the wave is. So this would be the height of each peak or the depth of each trough. And finally, the frequency is the rate of vibration of the wave. So the number of wavelengths within a specified time period. Now, for our purposes, the most important of, the, of these properties is 
the wavelength. And this has to do with the energy of the wave. As we are going to see a little bit later, the shorter the wavelength, the higher the energy of the wave and vice versa. And when we look at the whole electromagnetic spectrum of waves, we are going to make some connections between the type of electromagnetic wave and the energy it carries and what does it mean from a practical point of view. Now, looking at light, which is again a type of uh, wave, type of electromagnetic radiation, there are also some additional properties to consider. All right, so a light shines upon an object and several things can happen with that light wave. The light can be reflected, and this is when the wave bounces off the material, or the light can be absorbed, which means that the material captures the energy of a light wave. Now, transmission means that the wave travels through a material and the rate of that transmission is going to define if the object is transparent or opaque. You know, transparency versus opacity is going to reflect basically how clear the material is. Also, something interesting happens when light crosses through different materials. When light crosses or it's moving through the air and then hits a different medium, let's say glass or plastic, transparent plastic, the light will keep on going, but it's going to bend slightly as it crosses from air to glass or plastic, etc. And this is what we call refraction. So refraction is uh, the bending of the light as it crosses from one medium to another, and the refractive index is a measure of the light bending ability of a medium. From a practical point of view, what this means is that depending on this index, the light will follow a more linear path, you know, going straight, or it may bend and goes somewhere else. And this can have an implication when we are using microscopy because the light will be crossing through air and through glass as it goes, follows the path from, you know, the light source, crosses uh, different lenses, crosses the slide, the specimen, and so on. Okay, so let's remember that we talked about waves in general, because light is like one type of wave, we define wavelength, amplitude, frequency, reflection versus absorbance. We talked about transparency versus opacity, and then we talk about the bending of the light, which is called refraction. Now, again, the electromagnetic spectrum includes all kinds of radiations, and this is going to go from you know, sound waves, light, different kinds of light, visible light, ultraviolet, x-rays, gamma rays, cosmic radiation, everything in between. 
So visible light is really a very narrow range of electromagnetic radiation. And as we were saying before, the longer wavelength means less energy, the shorter wavelength means higher energy. If you consider the spectrum of visible light and which is the next radiation on the shorter side, so we are now moving from visible towards shorter wavelengths, the next one is going to be ultraviolet. Ultraviolet doesn't belong to the visible spectrum, but it's very closest to the shortest wavelength of the visible spectrum, which is kind of violet, you know, blue and, um, and violet are the shortest wavelength side of the visible spectrum. So UV light, as you know, you have to protect yourself from UV light because it can you know, cause damage, can cause cancer if you are not using, um, you know, you're not protecting your skin from the sun. In later chapters, you are going to learn that UV light can sterilize, can kill microbes because of the damage it causes to DNA. So remember, shorter wavelength means higher energy. UV light has shorter wavelength and higher energy compared to visible light. Even shorter are radiations that we know to be much more dangerous. So when you look at X-rays and gamma rays, those are called ionizing radiation, you know, think radioactivity, um, think atomic bombs. So those are very short wavelength radiation. They have a lot of energy. They can cause a lot of damage to DNA, to cells. And that's one of the reasons why these radiations can be used um, actually to sterilize materials because they kill cells. On the other end of the visible spectrum, so the other end which has the longest wavelength, we are going to see red. So again, it goes from blue to violet, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red. So after red, Again, longer wavelength is infrared. So infrared is also um, is not visible to the eyes and has lower energy compared to visible light. And after that, what we have at longer wavelength will be uh, radar, TV, radio. Um, so it's, it tends to be more like sound uh, waves. So those have very high uh, long wavelengths and therefore much lower energy. So I hope that I got you a little bit situated in how visible light compares to other radiations, but really the most important thing is to remember that longer wavelength, less energy, shorter wavelength, higher energy. So moving on to the microscope, how do we find the characteristics of microscope. Well, magnification and resolution is something that we kind of understand what they do. So magnification is the ability of a lens to enlarge the image of an object when compared to the real object. So if you know a magnifying glass, you're going to make it bigger. And while well, the higher the magnification number, the bigger you're going to see the, uh, the original image. 
And resolution is the ability of the lenses to distinguish two points. And, you know, one usual example is there is a car coming in the dark towards you. In the beginning, you see only one light. And eventually, as it gets closer, the resolution improves. And then you will be able to see two headlights or a little bit more, you know, updated example would be the the resolution of a digital picture or any picture for that matters you know as you uh, make the picture bigger blow it up bigger then the higher the resolution the more details and the less pixelated the image is going to be it's a bit hard to uh, describe the microscope parts in an audio recording, so I will do my best, but remember that this is going to make much more sense when you do it in the lab with your own hands. Microscopes have parts that are, uh, you know, meant for to hold the microscope, to move the microscope. So that would be the base, the arm. And um, in addition, we have the stage where the slide uh, goes. So your specimen will be on a slide and then you're going to place that slide on the stage and there are these little clips that you can adjust it. Regarding the optical part, I'm going to uh, try to describe how the light moves from the beginning, which is the light source of the microscope called the illuminator until it gets to your eyes. Um, so usually if you imagine a microscope, on there is a base and there tends to be a um, a light source, we call that an illuminator, and the light will go upwards. And as it goes upwards, first is going to cross a structure called the condenser. Condenser is a special lens that is going to focus the light to make it like a cone. And the reason is that because the you know it has to target a very small area on the where the specimen is on the slide, you want to focus the light so you don't lose a lot of the intensity of the light. You will, you know, experience that the higher the magnification, you're going to need to get more light on your specimen to be able to observe it. Another part uh, associated, another, um, you know, microscope part that is, is associated to the condenser, it's what we call an iris diaphragm. And this is a, a controls, it's an opening that controls the, uh, the amount of light passing uh, through the condenser and it helps again regulating the light so it's not too bright or it is not too dark. After passing the condenser, the light uh, hits the slide, which is going to be on the stage passes the slide, passes the specimen, and it goes through a set of lenses, which are called the objective lenses. And most, um, you know, regular microscopes, particularly from you know, teaching labs, will have four lenses, and they go from very low magnification to much the highest magnification. I'm going to, you know, give you some example of the most common objective lenses. So the lowest magnification tends to be a 4x, also called the scanning lens. This is not the lens that you use to observe a lot. This is mostly to, um, you know, to start the process of focusing and also to, to place the specimen right in the path of the light. 
The next one would be a, a low magnification one. It's usually a 10x, could be 20x in some microscopes. Next comes the 40x. This is a high magnification or high dry lens. And the reason it's called dry is to contrast it from the highest magnification lens, which is called the oil objective, which is a 100x. And I'll talk about the oil objective in a minute. Um, again, the light has passed from through the condenser to the slide, the specimen, and then it goes through one of these objective lenses, and then it passes a set of prism and mirrors, which kind of turns the light towards what we call the eyepiece. And this is where another set of lenses is. It's called the ocular lenses. And these two lenses, um, so these are two lenses that have the same magnification and tends to be a 10x. In order to describe a total magnification that you are using, you have to multiply the magnification of the objective lens by the magnification of the ocular lens. So for example, if you are using the hydride, that would be 40x multiplied by 10, it would be 400x. Um, regarding the um, oil lens, it's called the oil lens because when you are using that lens, you will put a drop of a special oil called immersion oil between the slide and the lens. And uh, actually the objective lens, it's oil immersion 100x lens, will be dipped into the oil so there is no air between the slide and the objective lens. And the reason for this is to avoid um, refraction, bending of the light. Immersion oil has a refractive index very similar to glass. So as the light crosses the slide, the specimen, and then the objective, it will not hit air. Just going to go through that oil. And because again, the refractive index is very similar, it's not going to bend. And this is going to increase the amount of light actually going through the lens and will provide the highest magnification of a bright field microscope. And in fact, if you want to observe bacteria, you do need to use that lens because you are not able to see uh, the details of the bacterial shape or arrangement in lower magnifications. Besides the um, this Brightfield microscope that you will use in the lab, there are other types of microscopes, and I you know, encourage you to learn more about them. They tend to have more specialized uses or sometimes are very sophisticated. We have dark field uh, microscope, phase contrast microscope that provide them, um, you know, if they are good for certain kind of microbes. They provide a little bit more of a 3D um, image without uh, going more, very sophisticated. Um, certain microscopes can use fluorescent light, such as fluorescent microscopes. They provide beautiful details of the cells. Confocal microscopy is a little bit like a CT scan of the specimen. So it stops, kind of slices the specimen, which provides a very sharp, uh, very detailed um, image of any specimen. And there are some more 
advanced one that are able to basically observe molecules. But I want to focus on a special kind of microscope, which is electron microscope. And this is a microscope that is necessary if you want to observe viruses. You cannot observe viruses with uh, visible light. The name electron microscope comes from um, electron beams. So instead of light, it uses electrons, which will have a much... So this electron beam is going to have a much lower or smaller wavelength, which will allow for a much higher resolution. Two types of electron microscopes exist. They, um, none is better than the other. They, um, they have different uh, uses, but they also differ in their magnification. The transmission electron microscopy, which you, you may see in images that are labeled TEM, is uh, the microscopes that provides the highest uh, magnification. It goes all the way to 100,000x. And as the name indicates, this electron beam will actually go through the specimen and then will be hitting either a screen or a film. This is not light. They are not going to see um, the actual specimen. You will be seeing like a negative of it. And in order to see them, the, the slides are cut in a very ultra-thin slices and stained with heavy metal salts. But again, the resolution is extremely high and you will be able to see the inside of many cells. On the other hand, the scanning electron microscope, SEM, is not, uh, doesn't go through the cell. It kind of scans the surface of the cell. So you will see very cool, um, you know, images, kind of 3D uh, kind of images where you see the outside of the specimen. You can see the outside of the cell. These microscopes are slightly less um, expensive compared to the transmission electron microscope. The, uh, those require you know, very special rooms with um, you know no vibration. The climate control has to be exquisite, and they are very 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 expensive. Scanning electron microscopes can be less expensive, and they are smaller too. On the other hand, in order to scan the surface of the specimens, they require special treatment. So sometimes you have to do what's called the sputtering with gold. So cover them with this gold uh, compounds that will kind of, um, you know, act like a stain for the electron beam. Scanning electron microscopy resolution is lower, so it reaches 10,000 X, so it's 10 times smaller than the transmission electron microscope, but again, it's not that one is better than the other because they provide different images and they are used for different purposes. But let's go back to our very little regular bright, bright field microscope and talk about how do you prepare the samples. Um, you can just take a drop of a, uh, you know, solution or broth or pond water and put it under the microscope and watch the cells live. And this is what we call a wet mount. The problem is that the approach, or not the problem, the limitation is that live cells 
tend to be um, you know very clear there is not a lot of contrast between the background and the cell not to mention that they are alive they may be moving and they may be hard to observe so the majority of observations under the microscope happen with cells that have been fixed and stained um, so how do you start first of all you have to prepare what we call a smear a smear is a thin film of solution of microbes on the slide you know if it's too thick then you, you will just see darkness when you look under the microscope you wait for that smear to dry and then you fix it and fixing can be done by heat or by adding chemicals and the purpose of fixing is um, is multiple so one is that that way the cells will attach to the slides so even if you wash the slides you treat the slides they won't detach they will be st stuck to the slide uh, not unimportantly the cells would be killed especially if you are dealing with pathogens you don't want to be you know handling live microbes and third is going to preserve the structure of the microbe and it helps the staining which would be the next step in order to observe the microbes so again you prepare the smear you let it dry and then you fix it and that way um, the smear actually can you can store slide with um, fixed cells for some time you don't even have to stain them right away because they can be preserved for longer time staining is um, again the purpose is to increase the contrast between the background and the cells you will be adding stains to them and these stains are salts so these are special compounds they have a salts but positive and negative ion and one of those two ions will have the capacity to produce color and which is called the chromophore okay so if the chromophore is in the positive ion then we talk about basic dyes if the chromophore is on the negative ion then we talk about acidic dyes you may know this from previous classes that cells uh, tend to have a negative charge in general on their surface so that means that um, basic dyes which have the color in the positive ions will attach to all cells and most of the dyes that we'll be using in the lab crystal violet methylene blue malachite green and saffronine are all basic dyes acidic dyes have their use for certain cells or for certain structures now regarding the complexity of the stains we can differentiate them in simple and differential simple stains are simple they just require one stain one single basic dye and this is a stain that will stain all the cells the why would you use simple stain it's usually to have a quick look at the cells what is the shape what is the arrangement or maybe if you want to estimate the size however for a the purpose of you know diagnosis or even to identify bacteria the first step tends to be differential stains and particularly the gram stain 
In differential stains, you will use more than one stain, which either stain different bacteria or different parts of the uh, bacteria. And sorry, I'm talking about bacteria. It could be also other microbes, but this is mostly used with bacterial cells. Regarding gram staining, which is an old staining, it was developed in the late 1800 by a scientist called Graham, Hans Christian Graham, but it's still extremely used. And the reason is that knowing the gram staining of a cell is going to tell us a lot about the structure of that cell and therefore how that cell behaves from how um, aggressive it could be or what kind of antibiotics can be used to treat it. So gram staining, you're going to keep hearing about it through the whole course. So cells, bacteria can be gram positive or gram negative. Um, the difference depends on the structure of the cell wall. So I, I don't want to go much in detail now because it will make more sense when we correlate the steps of the staining with whatever is going on with different components of the cell wall. But um, the two stains involved, just very briefly, it's crystal violet and safranin, and gram positives with stain purple, and gram, uh, gram negative cells will stain pinkish or reddish. And additional chemicals are involved in the gram staining, uh, particularly alcohol, which will stain the gram-negative cells, but not the gram-positive cells. So that's why the gram-positives will stay purple, and the gram-negatives will be uh, stained with safranin to provide this pink-red color. Another important and often used staining is acid-fast staining. This is for um, some bacteria groups that have a cell wall reinforced with a waxy, wax-like compound. So it makes it very difficult to penetrate. And among them, we have mycobacteria, which includes the bacteria that causes tuberculosis, for example. So the dye here uses carbofushin. And positive, acid-fast positive cells are going to have this very... Uh, hot pink kind of color and everything else, the counter stain. So the second stain is often called the counter stain, is a methylene blue. So negative cells will stain blue. Other uh, stainings that are used are, for example, negative staining. As the name says, you are staining the background, not the cells. Um, the color of the background is going to be black. And it's particularly useful when you have bacteria presenting what we call a capsule. The capsule is an additional layer, and um, visualizing that capsule helps us to have an idea of how aggressive that bacterium can be. Um, last but not least, endospore staining. Stains uh, structures called endospores. Certain gram-positive bacteria produce these extremely resistant structures called spores when they are in a bad situation. For example, if there is no food, they kind of package all their genetic material into this um, survival capsule and the rest of the cell disintegrates. 
And spores are very, very tough. They can survive hundreds of years. They can survive out there in the wild. They can survive dryness. They don't need food. And unfortunately, they have been used, some of them, as bioterror agents. In order to visualize these structures, you need a special staining, which will stain uh, endospores green. Uh, so the, the dye is malachite green, and then the rest of the non-spore forming cells will stain red. There are a few other stainings that can address you know, some structures of the cells, such as the flagella staining, but the big ones will be gram staining, acid fast staining, and endospore staining, and you will learn more about them both in the lab and as you study about the bacterial cell structure. Thank you.